Hey, folks, I know there are lots of business owners who listen to this show. Maybe some of you never planned on running a business, but now here you are. One thing you've always got to keep in mind is how much you're spending on your operating costs. That's one of the first things we had to keep in mind with WTF. And with things costing more today than they did when we started, you want to keep your expenses down. To reduce costs and headaches, be smart and use NetSuite by Oracle, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. Reduce IT costs, cut the costs of maintaining multiple systems, improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash WTF for more. That's netsuite, N-E-T-S-U-I-T-E dot com slash WTF. All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fucking ears? What the fuckadelics? What the fuckaricans? What the fucksicans? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast, WTF. Welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. I'm happy to be in your head. I'm very sad to say that uh, a recent guest on the show, uh, Mr. Gary Marshall, one of the great creators uh, in television and in movies, passed away day before yesterday. I'm not sure how I got word. We just uh, had a conversation, it feels like, in here. It was only a few months ago, and we posted it a couple months ago. It's still up there. What a sweet guy. He was not young, but still, you feel like people are going to live to 100 these days. Some people do, but it's very sad. It's sad that uh, I had this conversation with him, just sitting right over there. This happened a few times in here. I think I had one of the last conversations with uh, Lemmy as well. And I knew he wasn't long. And I don't think I knew that about Gary, but they, it's just sad. Now he's, he's not here, but he did left, he left a lot of stuff and he made, uh, he made a lot of our childhoods somewhat bearable. I, I, I remember happy days when I was very young and, uh, hey, come on, right? The Fonz, man. Anyways, rest in peace, Gary Marshall. My heart goes out to everybody who knew him. Friends and family, I'm sorry for your loss. He was a great guy and uh, an important guy, game changer. So it's, uh, it's sad. But it also makes me think about my own mortality more than I usually do. I don't think about it a lot. Do you guys think about it a lot? Like, I don't think about dying except when I go to sleep at night. Really. Like, I'm not hung up on it, but I do wonder, like, after I eat barbecue or something like that, did I just take some years off my life? Is tonight the night that the heart stops ticking? Could it please happen in the night? And then I think about that moment, like when it happens, then what happens? Then I picture me just laying there, but not knowing it. Somebody having to deal with that, with the me laying there. I yeah, That's why I think about it. It's my way of uh, getting some shut eye. I've actually gotten to the point where I'm, I panic so much where, where I'm just sort of like, I don't think I can go to sleep because I'm not feeling great about about this one about this particular sleep. Not feeling great about it. Don't know if I'm going to make it through this sleep. I don't know why I choose to do it then. Sometimes lately I've been thinking about my time. My time. Like, I, I mean, I waste a lot of time and I dick around a lot, I guess. But at some point, 
you have to think like, well, this is the life I choose to live. It's not a waste of time if I'm engaged in it and I'm enjoying it, right? But it seems that like what starts to happen like with music and with movies and with what I watch or what I read, I have this this um, system of judgment. Like this better be fucking great because I don't know how long I'm going to live. Like, okay, here's a big book. I'm going to read this book, but I don't know if I'm going to read this book. I mean, how much time do I got? I'd like to listen to all these records, but some of them just by the cover of this, I don't know if this is going to be good. Maybe I can just uh, listen to a couple songs because I could die in the middle of one of those songs. I actually have those fucked up thoughts. Like I got into an argument with Sarah like a couple weeks ago where we're just like looking on Netflix, doing that thing and going through my movies. Like I always seem to want to watch a movie I've seen before that's great if she hasn't seen it, but she doesn't like violence. But that's not the issue. The issue was she's able to just sort of watch garbage and contextualize it. I seem to think that it's like, you know, like cancer could be eating me now from the inside and now you're going to make me watch two episodes of what? We're going to sit and watch that and just pretend like that time is not precious? I would rather sit there stewing about what we may or may not watch than waste for an hour, than waste an hour and a half watching something that is just garbage, does nothing. But then, like, if I get involved and I start watching the garbage, I'm like, it's not that bad. I guess there's some positive things to it. And then I, I learn a lesson. It's like, maybe don't be so quick to judge. Maybe you should just relax a little bit. All right? Like, I just, I don't know how much time I have left. Like, I got a tweet the other day. I should interview Trey Anastasio. Is that how you say his last name from Fish? People are like, you got to get into Fish. I'm like, I don't know. I, I don't have that kind of time anymore. Those days are behind me. I got no room. I got no room in my heart or my mind for another jam band. I just don't. It's no disrespect. I guess I could listen to a couple records, but I feel like fish people, they want you to, they, they think like you just get a taste, you're going to go down the rabbit hole. I, I don't know if I'll live that long. I'm not sick. I'm doing okay. I'll probably live a long life, but I don't think it's be long enough for me to really wrap my brain around the fish experience. Maybe I'm wrong. All right. That's, that's enough on that topic, I think. Okay. That's that. Did I mention my guest today is Chuck Klosterman? Got a new book out called But What If We're Wrong that I read the entire thing, so I was loaded up. Sometimes, most of the time, it's not good. Most of the time, it's better off I don't read anything or know what I'm getting into because then you end up a little interview tip, if that's what you call what I do. I call it talking, but you don't want to know the answers to what you're asking questions of that, which is, I think, a wrong uh, approach. Some people think you should basically know the answer. I think, I don't know, I don't study anything, but but I'm better off if I just get a sense and then they can answer the question. Because if I know everything or if I've read the book, then I'm like, remember that time in the book you did the thing? In the book you said, but like what I noticed about the book, yeah, I don't love doing that, but it happens. Chuck close to me though, and I like the book and it didn't matter. That's happening. Do I, do I have to plug anything for me? The things that I need you to know about things that I'm doing? Like you can go to WTFpod.com and uh, check out the uh, the tour schedule because I added dates. Yes, there are pre-sales that you could indulge in. On September 24th, I'll be in Boston, Massachusetts at the Wilbur Theater. And the pre-sale started yesterday, but it goes until like midnight tonight. The password is Boston. Again, another one, New Haven, Connecticut on the 25th of September. Pre-sale until uh, 10 o'clock tonight, Thursday. Thursday. Password WTF. That's a ticketfly.com. 
Nashville, Tennessee at the James K. Polk Theater. I will be there on the 19th of November. The pre-sale started yesterday, but it goes until tonight at 10 p.m. The password is um, WTF. You can go to WTFpod.com slash tour for that stuff. All right. Chuck Klosterman, whose name I've mispronounced on and off for years, uh, has a new book out called But What If We're Wrong? It's available now wherever you get books. And uh, now I'm going to talk to Chuck. This is the third time I've talked to Chuck. One of those times was at a live event in Brooklyn, and it was a fucking nightmare. It was outdoors in an amphitheater, and it was very poorly attended. And we felt like we were just floating there on this amphitheater stage, me and four or five other people talking to an audience of a few drunk people and some other people that weren't clear what they were watching. It was a mistake, and it was never released. In the can forever and then there was another time chuck was on a live one and we had a nice conversation but this was nice we talked a lot about the book about thinky stuff he's a thinky guy and uh here we sometimes i wish i paid more attention in school or in some cases any attention at all there are probably a lot of things i could have gotten more out of like literature and now it's probably not in the cards to go back to school and study the classics but luckily for us there's a new podcast called the foxed Age that dives deep into the best books of all time. This is basically like the best possible college English class, but more relaxed and fun. No pressure of grades or needing to prepare something to say in class. It's only the books you want to read and know about presented by best-selling author Kimberly Ford. Everything from Cormac McCarthy to Madame Bovary, from classics like Frankenstein to modern hits like Lessons in Chemistry. I love Ireland, but I missed the boat on James Joyce. The Fox Page has a three-part series on Dubliners, and that's a pretty great starting point. Want to get the most out of what you read? The Foxed Page is for you. Get it now wherever you get your podcasts. Go. I read the whole book because it seemed like you meant business. <laughs> like I was—I mean, I've read your books before, but I'm like, this one seems like you started. And you're like, well, this is what you know, I'm going to set out. I'm proving. Uh, I'm going to try to prove this point or explore this idea. They explore a lot of mm-hmm. ideas. But about by about uh, two thirds of the way through the book, I thought to myself, this sort of uh, is kind of a uh, almost a midwife crisis book, in a way. Really? <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll see. I don't think so. But no, I mean, how old are you? Forty-four. All right, so I'm fifty-two. It just seems that at some point we we reckon with a lot of like, you know, why is shit the way it is? And and is it going to change? And is anything I'm doing important? You see, I feel like that happened to me earlier. <laughs> at what age? I feel like the Killing Yourself to Live book is like that. Uh-huh. I, I mean, is this the, you know, but you're not the first person who's mentioned this. That they, like a lot of, are we taping now? Or yeah, sure. Talking? Okay. Um, a lot of people, they ask, they think that this book is you either must be optimistic or uh, pessimistic because it is about the future, right? And it's either like you're optimistic about the fact that reality could be unknown or you're pessimistic because it's hopeless 
to know, you know, it's like you're almost giving up on the ability of understanding what's going on. I don't feel like it seems like a neutral charge to me. Yeah, I didn't feel that it, it was uh, optimistic or pessimistic, no. and I felt the neutral charge. But like at some points, I was sort of like, well, I, you know, I was laughing, and and the footnotes themselves feel like they should have been a book. Like you should release a, a, a another book of just the footnotes because they're hilarious. And um, some people hate those, though. Really? So, well, they just think it's work. It's just added work, and they're like, why don't you just put it into the text? But it doesn't seem right that way. No, but they they sort of serve yeah. as another exploration and sort of sometimes oh, a, a yeah. funny punctuation to things that, you, you know, the placement of the footnote in reaction to whatever was written. Sometimes it's sort of like, oh, that's uh, funny that he decided to put that in. And some of them are clearly jokes. Yeah. yeah. Well, no, I mean, I'm glad you think that. But I, I just know that sometimes I always wonder, <laughs> would, should I jam them in? But then it seems like sometimes they kind of contradict the tone of the book. But Well, you explore all these yeah. different things. That, you know, the premise that sets out the beginning is, you know, how do we know what's going to be what's going to remain or what's going to be important in the future? Right. Mm-hmm. That, I mean, is that the premise? Yeah. Yeah. And and then you sort of go through all these different areas of uh, of space, of music, of sports, of uh, of, uh, you know, technology. And, and you sort of like you know, meld them all together. And, you know, I don't want to spoil the end <laughs> of the book. But it seems that, you know, you, you come full, not full circle, but you land at today and, and you seem OK with that. Oh, it, it almost so. seems like uh-huh. if you read this in a day, part of me thinks like this was a rough morning for Chuck. Uh-huh. <laughs> I, you know, I, I, I guess it's okay if that's how it seems. It, did, it didn't feel that way when I wrote it. I just this was what was sort of interesting me to me now. I mean, because the the overall premise everyone agrees with. Yeah. If you say to somebody, it's like you know, if I said to you, "Hey, do you think in uh, you know a hundred years that we're going to perceive?" Uh, presidents differently and that will rank the presidents differently and somebody who we currently think is a great president won't be thought of that way then everybody goes like oh of course that's we are we're always reshuffling right but then you say like okay it's gonna be lincoln yeah and they're like they just freak out it's like everyone in the abstract sort of accepts this but as soon as you start talking about specific ideas that we might be wrong about uh people are are very uncomfortable with that because they need to feel like a degree of certitude about specifics even if they can accept in a general sense that they might know nothing i guess i don't come from that that breed or i I don't talk to those people or have those conversations Mm -hmm. because i just assume that uh, there's a lot of things i don't know there's a lot of history I don't know. There's a lot of ideas. And you cover this in the book. Like, what do we really know and how do we really know it? And how, do, how are our brains programmed and wired? And what's underneath all of that, which is, you know, terror. But, but I mean, you strike me as pretty confident, though, in your opinions about this. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I wouldn't say that you're walking around absolutely certain about everything you say. But it's, I feel as though when you express ideas... I get the sense that uh, that you feel like, well, I've kind of rationally considered this, and now but, but, I, I feel safe having this opinion because I don't feel safe with my opinions. Yeah, and I mean, like you don't in general. Oh no, but, less the more I I get older. I mean, when I was in college, I felt like I was very intellectually confident. I wouldn't say I am now. I think that I was in college, and in a lot of my life, I was sort. Of, I felt like I was sort of an intellectual fraud. And once I started to say things like, yeah, I don't fucking know anything about that. Like the more 
more I say I don't know, the better off I am. And then I can see like my opinions are, are mine and you know the world that I travel in and, and what I think about uh, is, is pretty specific, but it's not trivia or, or history or I don't I don't sit around and, and really worry about space that much. Well, I mean like well how do you feel then about like the period when you were with Air America? Yeah. Because there was a real emphasis on kind of being a polemicist. It was very kind. very it was very specific yeah. to me is that you know when I entered that situation to talk about politics, I felt like um, like I felt naive. I felt like I didn't know enough. I actually showed up at the offices of Air America with a uh, democracy for dummies. I was not a wonk. I was not really that familiar uh, of the nuances or the the way that American government worked on a day to day basis. I just knew that I was angry, and if you if I had some direction with it, I could make an impact. I was a pretty. Did you try to overcompensate? Quite, uh, with force of personality? Well, I just was a reactionary. I knew what didn't sit right with me. I didn't exactly know why. And the more I learned, which it was an incredible civics lesson for me more than anything else about how the American system works specifically and how government works and who the players were and what was really at stake and what was really being done, which I entered that that world not really knowing. Um, and the more I learned, the more I realized it was very hard to to have political ideas that were your own. It was very hard not to carry water mm. for a team or a side. Mm. Uh, most of what you were saying was being generated as talking points uh, for, you know, by who, who knows. But there was just definitely a momentum that you yeah. were part of. And I became disillusioned with it. And I realized that I'm not that interested in it. I obviously care about progressive causes, but I don't know if this is my fight to fight. I seem to be a little more neurotic and a little more aggravated at a deeper level that seems to be worthy of exploration. Let someone else handle this i mean the key thing there you said is like you don't it's hard to have political opinions that are your own i think that is very true i think it's it took me a long time to accept that i can't really control what i think that i i guess i used to always assume that that was the one thing that i did have agency over that i could control what i th- what i think oh it's weird and, and now you're... i realize that and i think that is kind of the starting point to any uh, kind of authentically sort of interesting thoughts is, yeah. is, is first accepting that the way you think about things is almost built into you uh, and then kind of shaped by society and by the people you surround yourself with. And then you just, once you kind of realize that you're trapped in this position, then the whole idea is getting out of the trap. Well, it's sort of like huh. real at that moment where you realize that, you know, your brain is sort of a recording device and that, you know, there's an emotional, you know, uh, board in there that's laid down pretty early but the rest of it is is just you know what's resonating with you and what has impacted on you in any sort of given moment and what fits philosophically for you at any given point in time and as you make it pretty clear in this book it's all fed to you from somewhere but you record it well yeah but it's the emotional aspect that fucks up the recording i know that's why thank god that's why people just can't remember things that actually happened to them and that 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 the way that they sort of perceive everything yeah. is through this this kind of false memory that is like the superstructure is the intellectual part that remembers the event and then the emotions make it all different and then they can actually have a conversation where they really believe what they're talking about happened yeah yeah well I, I and, and you did a lot of research for this book that's a whole area of the book where you, you sort of talk about how the brain thinks in terms of story yeah. and thinks in terms of narrative so like when you set out to do this it seems that you know your insistence that it's not a book of essays which it isn't but your research took you a lot of different directions that didn't necessarily seem to 
to completely coincide with the with the the idea of the book more than it, it just coincided with you know you were interested in stripping it all down to figure out what is you know what does humanity expect yeah well i mean the, the titles get confusing you know the title of the book is the you know, but what if we're wrong so then yeah. some people assume it's just going to be a litany of things we're wrong about and that's right. not really what the book is and then the subtitle is thinking about the present as if it were the past that's closer to what is in the book yeah but not totally right um it's uh i mean i i guess there isn't like the i'm kind of lucky about this that when yeah. i write these books that i don't necessarily have to stay on a specific trajectory there seems to be no expectation that i will do that right like no one has ever complained that my books are not straightforward yeah. enough ever right. so i guess it just doesn't matter if they're not right you know? yeah. but when do you where, where you grew up like what what size city was it you grew up in where fargo no, or no, no outside no, it was of- a, uh, a town called winemere which is like 500 people and i was lived five miles outside of that so i was on a farm outside of a town called winemere north dakota so it's 65 miles south of fargo like a functioning farm yeah your your family were farmers yes what kind of farmers? Well, when I was a real little guy, uh, we had dairy cattle and, you know, sort of raised grain and row crops and everything. Then we had beef cattle for a while. My, my dad had a stroke when I was like 10 or 11. My brother took over the farm. He's I'm the seventh kid in my family. You're, you're 70? Yeah. So, he, like, my oldest sister's 18 years older than me. My brother's 17 years older than me. And you're the youngest? Yeah. But he took over the farm, and now the farm is almost exclusively, like, corn and beans. Like, it has sort of evolved from... How many uh, acres? Uh, well, okay. A lot of the... Some of the land we rent... Yeah, uh, we we live on. It's kind of. I mean, I can't even give you the exact number. I'm not yeah. even sure myself. Right. It's not big though. Right. Uh, we because uh, we when I was young, it seemed like most of the land that we farmed was rented. Yeah. Uh, so we had like the plot of land we lived on, which was like a quarter section. Yeah. Where the farm and everything was. Right. We had a pasture too. So right. Count that. You know. Like, yeah. Where the animals just hung out. Yeah, they just hung out there. Yeah. <laughs> Good so, life for a cow, you know. Yeah, but when your dad when your dad raised uh, beef cows, you just he just sell them off, and they were butchered and dealt with elsewhere, right? Yeah, you would sell like the calves every, you know, every, when they came. So you breed them primarily. Yeah, you'd have like you'd have like two bulls and a whole bunch of cows. Yeah. so it was a very good life for the bulls. <laughs> yeah, and when he did dairy, was there uh, milking on premises? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But I mean, I was I was too little for that. I, I think that I feel like we sold those cows, those Holstein cows, when I was like four. Uh-huh. I, I my one of my earliest memories is the selling. Because when you're a little kid, you love the animals, you know. Yeah. And I was really bummed out by this. But, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, like growing up, my mom and dad and the other brothers and sisters, you know, they would milk twice every day. Yeah. It seemed and, like a terrible life. I mean, I never would have wanted that life to be honest. It just even I I can't believe they did it. Kind of, but you know. <laughs> Yeah. But that was your that was your childhood. It was. Oh no, it was a great childhood, right. and it was a great. Yeah, I'm not saying that their no, no, life no, is terrible. I'm saying for me, yeah, for I, I just I wasn't that kind of guy. I so, mean, I liked. I didn't. I, I mean, I was terrible at farming, and the whole time I grew up, yeah, I was always sort of very ashamed about this because even like my my friends at school, yeah. Like there's 23 kids in my class. Was it like a classic red schoolhouse kind of situation, or you know, like no, uh, it was a classic big brick school, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, so there's like 80 kids in the high school. Yeah, but most of my friends, uh, from the almost the inception of my memory of them, intended to be farmers as well, right? And they would all, you know, and they so they were always talking about like people were always arguing about like about like 
international versus John Deere tractors. <laughs> And like Chevy versus Ford. These were just constant <laughs> arguments that, you know, that I had almost no like input on. I mean, I guess I could have the conversation just because right. I could talk, but I didn't have any investment in it. Yeah. You, well, you, you didn't, you, you weren't a Chevy guy? Well, we were a Chevy family. So I guess I adopted that <laughs> idea. But I mean, like in retro, I, I, I didn't know why. I didn't know, I don't know anything about engines and stuff right. like that. I mean, I'm terrible about that. Like my brothers, my two older brothers, they can like fix or do anything. Like, uh-huh. they're, like they're almost part of the generation that doesn't exist anymore where it's like if something breaks yeah. the first reaction is to fix it yeah. that is never my first reaction <laughs> like my i just i've never fixed anything but that's sort of interesting in relation to this uh. book because that's sort of what we're talking about about your your own thoughts it's like that early where you're like well we're we're chevy family like it's just yeah. given yeah well i and then it just was yeah. it was just i you know i yeah. had no i'm sure you defended the truck I'm sure I did. I'm sure I did. As you entered, you know, puberty and junior high and stuff, when you started to sort of realize, you know, you know, who you were and what you wanted to do, or at least what your interests were, what was going on on the farm? Well, it was the 80s. So all I remember hearing about is how we were going to go bankrupt. Because there was a terrible drought. The economy was terrible. I mean, all that... John Mellencamp, Blood on the Scarecrow stuff. That felt very real to me when I heard that. I mean, that's all. I don't ever remember conversations about the farm that were in any way like things are going great. Right. It was like either it's never raining or the prices are terrible. It was only bad. I mean, I still, for the rest of my life, anytime it looks like it's going to rain, I feel happy because I just, it's so ingrained in me to feel good when that happens. So I just, I just remember farming seeming like just a, like a, an extremely hard job that you had no control over whatsoever. You couldn't control the prices and you couldn't control the weather. And it was always hard. That's how I viewed the life of a farmer. <laughs> Is that when you sort of took solace in, uh, you know, you talk uh, at length, really, in one section of the book about about sports and about statistics and about numbers? Is that when you started to sort of find some peace of mind in that stuff? I just liked being inside. Yeah. <laughs> I liked being inside. I, you know, I liked reading. I liked listening to the radio and listening to cassettes. I liked, we had a Quonset. This is a, it's a Quonset's a big metal building with yeah. a concrete floor. That's where the basketball hoop was. So I spent a lot of time in there just listening to cassettes, playing basketball. Uh, that, that's what I remember about what. And was if you fun. wanted to hang out with friends, you, what, you, what, did you have the truck or? Well, kids really start. I mean, I used to drive around when in like you're eighth like 12, grade. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so we, but it was a town of 500 people, right? So there's, there's nothing. I mean, there's, there was three bars and like a tasty freeze and a gas station. There wasn't a grocery store that had already closed and stuff. So we would just drive around. I mean, <laughs> yeah, you would just drive. Know, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, right. And, and you know, there, and the there was one, and there was one cop, and the whole goal was to make the cop chase you when you weren't drinking. Mm-hmm. Like if the mm-hmm. co- if you could get the cop to stop you when you weren't <laughs> drinking, that was a huge win because it's like you wasted his time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was that was rebelling in your neck of the woods. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I they called the cop Pumpkinhead. Yeah, he had a big head but i can't now that i try to remember him i can't yeah. actually remember what he looked like so in my mind it's just like like the the the, the silhouette of his huge head in this cop car <laughs> yeah uh. so i i think that like some of the stuff you talk about is stuff I, I i think about a lot and maybe we can focus on some of that 
because I think it's interesting because, you know, I'm, I'm a little older than you, but you, there is something about, you know, the shift from not so much radio to television, but a, a television universe that was, you know, even when you were young, uh, intimate, that there was, you know, a limited number of stations. It was finite. There were three networks. Maybe MTV was around by the no, time. No, I, right. never, I never saw MTV until 1990. But there was something about the feeling of, of the unity of information, even if it was misinformation uh, as a country and as other people, we we're all kind of on the same page. Well, yeah, the shared experience. Right. That. Because, you know, now we talk about popular TV shows. There is no television show as popular as any random episode of Laverne and Shirley. Right. There isn't. I mean, it's not even mathematically, it's not even close, you know? Right. Um, and also there's networks now or TV shows where people, it happens to me all the time out here where they ask me if I've seen the show. Not only do I not know the show, but I don't even know how to, I don't even know what fuck, what's it on. Yeah. Well, it's, that's, you're not the only person who feels that way. And then but, there's, and then there's all these shows that are constantly discussed sort of by the critical community of television right. that are being seen by you know, 780,000 people in the country. So there, there's this, you know, these, well, you know, and this is, the, I think the first time I met you was when yeah. you interviewed me when Michael Jackson had died. Right. And I think we might've talked about it then, but it's very true now. It's very clear to me that by sort of splitting up television so that there's just no kind of monoculture, nothing is shared, that we now need these celebrity deaths to have shared experiences. That's the only way that people can know it's like we're all having the same uh, kind of emotional exchange at the same time. Or, or, or yeah. even more darkly, you know, terrorist events. Well, yeah, I guess. I guess. That's true. Although that's a little different, too, because those events immediately get polarized, politicized. Yeah, too. yeah, yeah. Whereas like when, when Prince dies or like when David Bowie dies or whatever, Lemmy dies. Yeah. It just sort of gives people this, this ability. It's like, well, you can just sort of openly emote about this you don't even have to necessarily have had this thought for 15 not, but, years right yeah. but not only can you openly emote because of social networking plans uh, platforms you can emote and make it about you and, and also uh you know try to uh to uh construct a, a proper eulogy in 140 characters that will be somewhat celebrated and recognized by other people and it's strange even the people who do that would say they hate it of course. Like, no one is saying, like, ah, oh, finally. Everyone says it's terrible, including the people who seem to do it every time it happens. But aren't you finding now, because, uh, because I, you know, uh, again, our age is not that different, that, you know, you're starting to realize that these people that were mythic to us were, were mortals, and, and even as grown people. Like, I, I'm dealing with this every day. I mean, I had Neil Young sitting there. I've had David Crosby sitting there. I've talked to Keith Richards. I've talked to Nick Lowe. I've talked to a lot of... I've talked to Lemmy, you know, probably the last interview before he died. And... One thing I'm realizing by having these conversations is that that everyone is very painfully human, and 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 that's great. That that's the best thing that can happen in here is that I realize that you know that it's a human being that that with struggles and and a life and a history. But you know, as a kid, you. You know, I don't, I, you know, the the fact that Keith Richards might live forever was like a very real possibility in some weird fucking way that you just never expect these guys to die. And when they do die, like when people said, you know, Bowie's dead, when he died, I mean, I, I had to sit there and go like, when was the last fucking time I bought a Bowie record? And the truth is, it's probably been since Scary Monsters, you know, and he's done a dozen since then, probably. It's not that I love him any less, but like just knowing he was still around was somehow comforting that we're seeing a generation of people that we fucking look up to 
that they're they're gonna die, man. Well, it's kind of like the thing we were talking about before: the abstract against the specific. Yeah. Everyone, of course, knows. Well, all people are going to die. Right. But then, when Prince died, you would see things. People saying things like, "I can't believe someone who made all these great records is gone," as if. <laughs> like, why would that make someone un- unkillable? Immortal. It's like, yeah, it's it, it's the, the specific person. It's like they just can't imagine, like, this, like Keith Richards, you say, that'll be an interesting one when he dies. Uh, because the idea of his death has really existed in the culture since, like, undercover people have talked about. You know? Yeah. So it's like the idea, people have been discussing his death longer, I think, almost than anyone I can think of, even longer than Dylan or right. something. So when it happens, it will be a very jarring one. Maybe that will be, maybe that's, you know, like when people start accepting celebrity death. Like right. his death will be like, well, okay, now we must learn and just kind of take for granted. Because now also, there's so many more famous people now than there used to be. It's going to be people dying like this every month from now on but, I mean there's just a greater number of celebrities than there was in the 70s right but when we yeah. were kids these celebrities because there were a few and again the intimacy of it they were you know they were myth, a mythic character they were huge people to us they were giants and that generation are the ones that are going now I guess you but this might be one area where the little difference in our age yeah. plays a role in this because yeah. you know like the band music for example like yeah. the bands I, I really got into were bands like Motley Crue right. and Rat and Guns yeah. N' Roses and these things I think it was a little different for people who were into bands like the Rolling Stones and right. Zeppelin and stuff because they were more mysterious they seemed more outside of the world but I mean I feel at a very young age like you know 6th 7th grade yeah. I was obsessed with these bands but I still perceive them as being like this is some extension of something that had come before them. Right. Like, you know, like like Molly Crew wants to be like Kiss. I know this or whatever. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's like it's not um so they they already it already seemed closer to conventional entertainment than I think it did for people who were into that so sort of, that's that's probably right because yeah. I came to it late. There, you know, by the time I was taking this stuff in in junior high or, or maybe a little, like I, it was a bad time because it was the mid seventies. You know, uh, AM music was still very popular. Disco was happening, and those bands. You know, I remember when In Through the Outdoor came out. That might have been the only album that Zeppelin put out that I was actually grown up enough to realize that that a Zeppelin record had come out. All the other stuff had been done already. Like that weird period in in the mid. 70s through disco before punk really took hold we were just dealing with the the sort of like undertow of the 60s and early 70s like it was all done it was all mm. old shit yeah by the time you know that well i mean it's just the whole thing with age is weird that way i mean like like Ugh. in in the middle 80s yeah like black sabbath seemed very old right they'd seen the same amount of old now right <laughs> somehow like even though more time more time has moved on but it, it's it's just that that well, there was just this belief that I mean you can find it just talking about the Rolling Stones you can find interviews where they're like talking about T-Rex in yeah. 1972 or whatever and people are like are you still in this game or are you going to give it up to people like Mark Boland or whatever and they're like oh well I know we're too old to be doing this but yeah. we're just gonna, like they were talking about being too old in 1972 <laughs> right I, I don't know I, yeah. I think it's hard yeah. to deal with you know, to, to, to sort of parse the press or what because you know they like I'm I'm not I'm just discovering shit now. I mean honestly I just I was not a Sabbath kid, you know, and I just really got into Sabbath or really assessing who they were and what they did and liking their music literally 3 years ago. Hmm. So like 3 years ago, uh Sabbath 4 was a new record to me. 
and I'm excited about that. That's one of the benefits yeah, of this uh, yeah. of this uh, history all the time, as opposed to uh, linear. Well, well, tell me this. Yeah. What What's the farthest back year to you that still feels recent? Like 19, what what year would you say that if you heard something happened in 19, whatever, yeah. it would be like, that, didn't, that doesn't seem that long ago to me? Well, I mean, when I was at Air America, 2004, I can see myself there, 2004-ish. Yeah. Yeah. Like, or like 9-11 seems a long time to you back. That seems like, a, that seems like the, the, very much the past to you. It doesn't seem like a recent event in your mind. I don't know. It kind of does. I think it feels like a recent yeah, event. It does, I feel yeah. like many, many things from the nineties yeah. still seem like very recent events to me. And yeah. I, it, 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 uh, it makes me very tentative about sort of talking or thinking about my life because yeah. I realize now I'm having this sort of skewed perception where the impact of things is staying with me as the years go by and it's making it seem as though things that happened a long time ago are recent. Yeah. Like I like or like a band like the Strokes or whatever. Yeah. They still seem new to me. Yeah. That's insane. <laughs> like that's an insane thing. They, 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 like the, but Motley Crue doesn't. Well, that... No, you, they don't you seem. You wrote about no, it, yeah, you, they, but they don't seem. Re- yeah. that, it's, that that now feels like something. That, no, I know yeah. what you're saying. Yeah. yeah, like the like the Strokes seem like. Oh, I remember they're this new band. Or yeah, if somebody was saying they were, in, you know, I like new bands, I might unconsciously think like do the they Strokes, like do they, yeah, like that. And that's, and they're like got to be almost forty now. Well, sure. I mean, their first record came out in two thousand and one, so yeah. their, their their band alone has lasted fifteen years, which is longer than the Rolling Stones in the early. But 70s. I guess my question is. Uh, even in looking at this book, you know, how much of this is just by virtue of the fact that we're getting older, man? I mean, I know that one of the things you wrestle with in this book is that, you know, what, like, it seems like you're actively fighting nostalgia in a way. Oh, well, boy, I would think that I would be perceived as overly nostalgic. I guess, but it seems like you're trying to talk yourself out well, of it. Well, as a critic, a you're not, you're supposed to be against nostalgia. That's yeah. definitely like from the, 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 the perspective of any kind of, of criticism. Yeah. The idea of nostalgia is problematic because it's like, well, you're not really remembering this film. You're remembering your own experience seeing that film. You're remembering your own life right. and you're shifting the value of it. Right. So I suppose that maybe it has been unconsciously drilled into me to be against nostalgia, but I, I don't like I don't think that's a big part of this book. I mean, to me, this book is more like just the history of ideas seems to be the history of people being wrong. And of course, we must be wrong now, but we're inside the system, so it's not visible. And the only way to sort of deal with this is to try to jump forward, get into the minds of people who don't exist, and imagine how they would look back on this period the same way we look back at like the 1840s. Yeah. But you also talk a little bit about the fact that most popular music from most other periods in history, it's gone. Most people who are popular entertainers are forgotten. Yeah. You know, that that you know, it takes a sort of, I can't remember exactly what you said about what causes something to last or why something well, stays yeah. in, but everything's always open to recritical uh, assessment. What seems to happen to me yeah. is that 
you start with like an entire field of candidates in yeah. any genre of anything. Music. Right. And then time marches forward and certain candidates disappear and they fall kind of by the wayside until there's one person left. And then that person is amplified and exaggerated. And that becomes the whole thing. Like John Philip Sousa is the yeah. example. Like, right. Like John Philip Sousa now is now interchangeable with marching music. He, for all practical purposes, he may be the only, he, he needs to be the only one who exists in that. Yeah. You know? um, and that's sort of how it works. So to think about that happening with rock music is weird because it just doesn't seem possible that they could ever somehow synthesize this down to one identity. But that's what happens with everything else. And like, right. Or like with, with reggae music. I am sure, probably by late in our own life, yeah. that the worldwide memory of Bob Marley and the worldwide memory of reggae will be interchangeable. Right. That, they won't, that, that, that he will be as famous as the music. Right. Yeah. And no one's going to care about Desmond Decker or Yellow Man. Only specialists. Yeah. And then they'll be just these people who, who have the specialized knowledge. Well, know? thank God for the nerds who, yeah. who are the curators <laughs> of history. They, you know, the guys who are sitting there. Well, with, they care the most. Yeah. I mean, it's good. It's actually good that weirdos get to d- dictate a lot of this because weirdos care more. Like sure. they, they don't have, maybe their life is missing certain things, but it's not missing this. Right. It's not missing my knowledge of like the, like the, the progenitors of post-punk. So I'm going to dictate who we remember from that period. I often have this problem that like, are we going to get to a point and we might even be there now where a young person who is relatively intelligent uh, says, uh, oh yeah, Hitler, he's the guy with the mustache, right? Is there going to be a point where so much content, as they call it, which I think is a demeaning and horrible name for things because everything is leveled to that, you know, there is no context for it. It's just there's just more mm. shit that almost everything will lose its meaning other than to be just sort of a, a compulsive viral meme or uh, that someone sort of like, you know, uh, helps to get traction or a, or, or, or just sort of like, that's surprising. Well, like Hitler know. is an interesting example though, because yeah. Hitler's become a stand in for other things. Right. Hitler is the thing that you use uh, when you're commenting on the internet and you want to shortcut the conversation, you accuse someone of being Hitler. Right. Or the Hitler mustache is like, you know, you criticize Michael Jordan because he once had a Hitler mustache. Like Hitler now means something that has no relation to what he actually did. So there probably will always be sort of this generalized memory of who Hitler was. But like someone like Stalin or Pol Pot or any of those people, they will be, I mean, I wouldn't, I would, I assume that the average 15-year-old kid has no idea who those people are now. Right. I mean, unless I'm just totally off and kids are more informed than, you know, kids in Canada might know. But don't you think that some of the, the, the inability for us to, you know, and I think you covered it a little bit, and I know I'm jumping around, but that's what the book does, is that when you talk about, there's a pretty brilliant sentence in there about how if, if you live to a certain age, there's no way you're not going to seem crazy. Hmm. That the, the the actual inability of the human brain or the individual with a life to really process how quickly and, and thoroughly things change almost on a yearly basis that your grandmother, I guess you said, was was born before yeah. 1900 and lived to in, in 1950s, yeah. that there would be really yeah. no way for her to, to really yeah, assess. Yeah, no, she lived into the 80s. So she was born and like the Wright brothers had not had a flight yet and then- she died many years after it had been boring to go to the moon. Like, we had given up on that. 
technology clearly is now accelerating much faster than sort of intellectual evolution. So I don't know how anybody can sort of live in this world and be engaged with it unless you just totally be like, I'm going to unibomber it and just step away from everything and cut this off. If you're actually going to be engaged in society, it's going to change faster than your ability to sort of comprehend those changes. So of course, the last 25 years of your life, you're going to be crazy it's just going to be this it's going to make no sense how these things work. no but but also it just seems that our 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 our, our default as humans is to adapt so we can continue to function in the culture mm-hmm. right i mean you know ultimately whatever the technological changes are i gotta be like do i have to be on twitter all right, let's let's try it. Now, what does this phone do? I mean, you know, but these things are tied in with what you do for a living. You will stop those things too. I mean, like there are many people who are now in their eighties. My mother's using emoticons. Yeah. I mean, what? I mean, well, she, okay, not everybody. There's always all right. Yeah, but I'm saying you're saying she's an outlier. I would say that she might be a little bit of an outlier. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, there are some people in their eighties who just won't use cell phones. They're mm-hmm. just like they're the, they, like the phone changed enough in their life, and this is what they're <laughs> stopping. You know, um, and it's. <laughs> I think that's an understandable thing. Sure, I, mean, I want to relax now. Yeah, I mean, there there will be some probably key technology. I would guess. I mean, unless you're just different, you might just be different. But I would guess that there'll be some new technological advent in the next ten or fifteen years, and you will just sort of not be interested at the beginning. But this time, you won't get pulled in. You'll just stop, and that will be it. And then that will like I don't like I did gonna, that with you Snapchat. Gonna, yeah, I was just going to use like this seems to be one that's happening now. Yeah. There's a certain kind of person who's just like I signed up for Snapchat. And I looked at it, but I didn't really get it. And I was like, what's it going to add? And they just sort of stopped. Yeah. I find myself realizing, like, my life is relatively small. My concerns, immediate concerns and my immediate creativity are are sort of paramount to, to what I do with my life. Uh, I only have so much time to put new shit into my head. Uh, a lot of times I miss almost everything. I have no real... Uh, I, I have no experience of the Kardashians. I'm not sure I could really even identify them on pictures. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm proud of that, but it didn't happen because uh, you know it, I, it just didn't grab me. I don't I don't know why. And there's a lot of things that don't grab me. So all this shit is happening but, all the but time. You, you use that example because you're like, here's something that most people seem to be in that I into that I am not. Or like, what? what no, I'm just using yeah. it because like I seem to miss because of what happening. Mm-hmm. What what is connecting people? The computer or, or information that they get, the, and, and we all have the ability to cherry pick you know, how we want to input information and how it supports our ideology or beliefs. There's no, you know, com- uh, there's rarely, I know that the internet seeks and finds communities of people that are interested in specific things, but it just seems there's this tremendous fragmentation going on in terms of possibilities of interests. And that, you know, what really happens for me is happening between me and you right now. And a lot of that shit, like, yeah. if anything, I think we're going to be known for this this generation of uh sort of spoiled you know entitled infantilized people that that reacted almost exclusively to random information at all times and 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 pissed away their life okay well like i guess here's the central question of what you're saying though it's like okay is something important because of what it is or is something important because enough people feel that it is? Because you're talking about the Kardashians, right? It's hard to look at someone like Kim, for me, to look at Kim Kardashian and see any sort of importance in what she does. However, the magnitude of people who seem to be into this 
does make me think, well, there must be something meaningful about like she's occupying the role of something that matters. Uh, so now I don't know, though, if that if like, is that a superficial way of me to think that just because a lot of people care that it must have meaning? Yeah. I mean, I, or has that always been the case? I mean, is the reason Elvis was important really because so many people liked him? Or was it had anything to do with what he was actually doing, his his interpretation of these songs, his onstage persona? Did that or was was the most important thing about Elvis was that people were crazy about him? Because if that's the case, well, then we have to look at people like Kim Kardashian differently, right? But I guess what I'm 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 getting at, and what I seem to get at when when I, I push aside everything is that. All right. Well, that aside and criticism aside and, and the speculations in the book aside, what is really important, Chuck? Hmm. I mean, like, you know, your father, right? Yeah. And, you know, we, we live these lives and you want to do the right thing and, 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 and hopefully add something to the world and you do with your, your books. But like for me, just rendering like the idea that keeps coming back in the book is that, you know, Aristotle's misconception about gravity and thinking that the rock wants to be on the ground to me was a, a very poetic and reasonable observation to have. Oh, it, it is. It, yeah. And it maybe it was you know clearly wrong, but it held for a long time. But also there's also the idea of like, well, what else was he? doing yeah maybe he was having dinner and enjoying time with friends and stuff like no, how, how important is all this yeah, well, shit? It, it, i mean it doesn't have to be important for me to pursue it as my career to be honest i mean <laughs> right. it doesn't i mean because here you know you talk about having kids that's right okay now so i have ki- two kids now and i'm having many of it's, I'm, I'm almost embarrassed to admit this i'm having many of the most cliche reactions to this in terms of how <laughs> happy it has made me in, yeah. my, in a way that i i guess maybe unconsciously i always assume people were kind of lying about some of it <laughs> that like that they that you just had to say it was like joining the military or whatever right, right. but actually no I've, i'm having all the most cliche feelings and i think for me though and maybe this is true for lots of people is that having kids the main thing it does in your mind is make you think about yourself less yeah um so i just i think about myself and I mean, not just my career, myself in general, how yeah. I'm feeling about things right. way less. And it, it's starting to make me sort of accept the fact that that is like the real key to uh-huh. being happy is uh-huh. to thinking about yourself as little as possible, which is so counterintuitive to everything else I've ever thought about my life. I always thought sort of the one thing <laughs> that you can really, that we, the only thing that we can really understand is yeah, ourselves. Right. And that's even kind of impossible. Yeah. And now it just seems like, just just don't think about it. Just, right. just think about anything else. And, but, but like in this book, and the reason why I found it to be sort of like a, a flurry of, uh, of, of existential issues more than just the, the thesis of the book uh, was that, y- you know, that you bring a certain amount of skepticism, which you talk a lot in the, about in the book. And it's really the, the driving force of this book in a way. Yeah, right. Yeah. So so like in your day to day life, um, you know, how much of that is in play? Like when. Oh, well, I mean, certainly when I'm working on a book. Right, no, in, I get in totality. that. Yeah. But like, I mean, all the time, I mean, I guess all the time, I mean, I feel as though I'm always writing, even when I'm not typing. But like with your kids, like, yeah. like oh, let's go back a little bit. You know, you come from a family of seven children and, you know, you must have been wearing everyone else's clothes yeah. for God knows how long. And like the idea of a, a large family was just something you grew up with. And, you know, you had siblings that were way older that you barely knew growing up, I imagine. Right. 
Well, they checked I mean, in yeah, occasionally. I mean, in a real way, I didn't know them. I did, yeah. Yeah. That was, because I was, even if even if we'd been together, I was too young to sort of understand what the life of a 20-year-old was. Yeah. So when you depart that unit, you know, in, uh, in, in North Dakota and you like go out to the big city, I mean, you know, what was what was the goal? Well, you know, I mean, I, this is when I was in college, I wanted to become a journalist because it seemed like I could do it. Yeah. It seemed like a, I, I like I was interested in it, and it seemed like I could do it. Like the, the interviewing and the writing, I could just do, and it seemed like this is great. Yeah. Okay, it's like something I like, it's something I'm kind of good at, and. You major in journalism, you become a journalist. There was actually a job. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, like I right. knew what the job would be. Yeah. Um, so then I, you know, I worked in Fargo for four years, and then I took a job at the newspaper in Akron, Ohio. And I, I, I guess my goal was, can I write a book-length manuscript? I didn't think it would get necessarily published. Yeah. Maybe it would eventually. My big for most of my life, though, or not not now, I guess, for the first half of my life, my goal was to get a job at the St. Paul Pioneer Press. Yeah, that was a pretty big newspaper, and I could maybe write one book in uh-huh. my life, and that was so the so all the things that have happened are far beyond what any goal I like. I never ever ever imagined. Like there, I would never. I used to read Spin magazine in college. Yeah. So when I got the job at Spin, uh, my friends from the college newspaper were like, "That was your dream. That was your dream." And I was like, "I never ever dreamed that. I did. I never even thought how. Like I knew people worked there, but I never ever thought of getting a job there. Like how I. I it wasn't like even something. Cause yeah. I, I was lucky, man. I, yeah. I had real limited dreams, and I think that's a big. That's a that's an important part of being a satisfied person. Right. Is having a real limited dreamscape. Or just assuming that, you know, it wasn't gonna happen for you. I mean, it's better to have a limited dreamscape than to end up bitter. I mean, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but but when you went into journalism, were you in pursuit of truth? Were you uh, were you a person that was sort of like going to break big stories? Were you like, you know, gonna seek out uh, the you know, justice? I wasn't one of those people. <laughs> I know I, I just wasn't. Yeah, I mean, right. Yeah, I, you know I started as a sports writer. Yeah. And then when I was a senior in college, I was like, I'm interested in politics now. I'm going to be a political writer. Yeah. And I, I guess if I had a desire, it would be sort of to be like, like I wanted to be in the mix of political writers, like the boys on the bus or whatever. Yeah. Um, but then when I graduated, there was an opening for the, at the paper in Fargo for an entertainment writer. And I had only written one or two stories on culture ever. <laughs> but I sent them those stories and I talked about it all the time. Yeah. And I knew about it. So I just convinced them. I yeah. just convinced them as like, I can do this. So that's yeah. what I did. So then I became a culture writer and that's how it, I mean, if, if the job had been for a political writer, that's what I'd be doing. Yeah. If the job had been for a sports writer, that's what I'd been doing. It like, I, uh, so, I mean, it's not as though I don't love it. I mean, I, I guess they so do. So you could have applied your curiosity and your desire to learn to either. Yeah. Well, because at the time I was into more than anything else, I was into journalism. Yeah. Like almost devoid of the subject. Like I was into the ideas of being a journalist, of like the the the, the way a journalist lived, the way, you know. Well, who were you guys? I mean, you mentioned Mencken, but uh, like Hunter uh, or who, who else? Who were the sports writers you like? Bob Lipsight? Oh, no, 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 no. 
I, I wasn't into anybody like that. I mean, I, like I, I, I wouldn't have known who those people were. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 outside of the people who I read in these books, and I was into almost like, um, uh, like how can I describe this? Like a, like a fictional caricature of a journalist who wore like a hat that said press, yeah. and like carried a notebook and went around asking people questions, and then went home and typed up a story <laughs> that was interesting to read. Yeah. It was like I, I, I. Uh, I've so it was I've an not, idea I, based on a comic book almost. Oh well, yes, the comic yeah. book that I wrote in my mind. I yeah. guess. No, but be, the press, yeah. the press. Well, yes. the hat I mean, was, I wouldn't have literally thought that's how a journalist dressed, but that's kind of what I was into. Because yeah. also, you know, I was working at the college newspaper, and I was the kind of person that like. Oh, so I'm writing about like the uh, you know like some some student government board was are like they're gonna put in like video games in there like i would to me that was as important as it would be if i had been covering watergate i mean i know it was no difference to me right, like yeah. there's never for it was me, the job every every story yeah. that i have ever done no matter what like i do people will ask like oh you know how is it to go from like writing about you know kobe bryant and then taylor swift like sports to right i do it all the same I just one. I have one style, and it's no style. Yeah, like that's my style. No style. No, I, but, I but, yeah, but out of that, you evolved the style, and you evolved. Well, no, but, a, yeah, well, I mean, a, my a own wit but, about it. But it's not. It's not like I'm trying to do this the way you're. Right. I, I have no interest in that. Ever. Right. Yeah. 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 And you know, but you know, because of that, you know, I mean, they're just they're, like there was something very telling to me about about you in this book because i'm looking for like you know autobiographical tidbits about this sort of weird you know uh compulsion uh around sports and around numbers Mm -hmm. and then sort of following that through to how numbers ultimately uh, are breaking down the the joy that is available in actually watching sports even if they're right there are certain things that we just because they're right right and that like that was the one part of the book where you actually conceded that like maybe we don't need to know this it's going to ruin shit yeah well it is, i mean i feel that way sometimes but there is you know it's like my first the first three books i wrote yeah some people kind of perceive they all perceive them as memoirs i don't think any of them are except the third one maybe but they're but so that was like three memoirs at 33 that's yeah. a book for every 11 years of my life well fargo so rock city then, yeah i mean like i think that sort of redefined how you know you could approach you, you know you did your own sort of uh amazing um paradigm shifting work on rock criticism and and sort of establishing a point of view that kind of uh made you rethink everything you thought about music I, well I, that would be great if that happened you that didn't think great. that happened well i don't know i if, first I, of all I here's the deal. even if i did think it happened i certainly wouldn't fucking say it on the podcast okay. that would make me seem like a real jerk even if i totally <laughs> believed it i wouldn't say it but uh maybe but, off yeah, mic you could but, tell but uh <laughs> I just, it was, you know, I mean, it's, there weren't books like that, and I wanted there to be a book like that, and so there was no other way to do it. <laughs> so when, when you, when, so how old are your kids? Uh, well, my little guy is two years and five months, and the girl is five months. So these are young kids. This yes. is new stuff. It is, but like, it is an interesting deal. Like I yeah. was, you know, I, I remember I, I uh, had a professor in college, a psychology professor, and yeah. she'd been a therapist. She yeah. had said that in her entire career she had never encountered a man who did not have some kind of unresolved issue with his father either yeah either anger or or you know whatever the case may be yeah some something negative you know um so you know now he's like two and a half our relationship is 
basically as idyllic as, it, as you can imagine. Like, right. he's like, you know, it's great. So, but I do look at him and I wonder, like, is she, is that inevitable? <laughs> is, is it inevitable that that's just going to be a component of our relationship? Well, what did you find in yourself? I imagine your first thought was like, well, what about me and my dad? Well, it was interesting because my dad had this stroke and that really changed him. And I think that maybe that- Wait, How old were you? 10, I think, or 11. Oh, so, okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. But I mean, he lived. Yeah. And, and, and- in a way, he recovered, you know, but in some ways, he was always emotionally different. Yeah. And I, th- I suppose that was it because I, I never had an adversarial relationship right. with my father the way some of my friends did. Mm-hmm. So I just thought, well, like, well, okay. I mean, of course. Now, also. And also, you the last kid, so they must have been exhausted. Well, yeah. And I, I, and I had seen, you know, their relationships with my older brothers and sisters. And I just wanted it to be easy for them. Yeah. So I just sort of anything about my life. <laughs> That was that they were not happy about. I hid, yeah. they, you know, I just hid all that, and I was just tried to be like make it easy. Yeah, um, you know, but the, this thing this professor said. I mean, somebody else pointed this out to me. Like she is talking about people who saw her as patients. Yeah. So it's like you know, it's not you know. So it doesn't mean like it has to happen. But I do. I look at this little guy and I just wonder. It's like I can't fathom him hating something about me. But is that going to have to be the case just by the nature? of a father-son relationship. Is it impossible for not that to be, I mean, we can still love each other and have a great relationship, but is it is that an inherent component? I don't know. From I, my understanding, it kind of is. You just in order for them to sort of um, define themselves, they have to go up against something yeah, and you're the so, closest target. But does that then, is that temporary? Or does it always it exist? Seems, it, it seems temporary. I don't know. Even with, if I think about my own father, it's a, it's a very volatile, sometimes uh, horrendous and, and difficult relationship. But still, uh, like now, or is it? It has its moments, but yeah. you know. But I, you know, I've learned to develop uh, an empathy. Like it seems to me that you were given the gift in a in a sort of horrible way to have to have empathy for your father's situation because he was physically compromised by that thing. Mm. That, you know, I don't know if that's always the thing. I think that we idealize our parents and they are either obstructions or or for whatever reason, you know, they're going to get the, the first hit. You know, if you're feeling your oats or you're feeling fucking pissed, you know, but if, if you have a, a sympathetic situation like, uh, you know, my father, I think there's a lot of. You know the uh, you know Oedipal or 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 the other whatever the opposite of that is. There's a competition at some point. Well, and there's also, also kind of complicated by the fact that like my relationship with my kid will be closer than my relationship was to my dad. Sure. In the same way, our relationship was closer than his relationship with his dad. Well, his dad died when he was like two months old, but he would have been. You know, it's just like going back. Every generation is more like a friend to their kid than the previous one. Um, although I do wonder like if there's like some like law diminishing return. If mm-hmm. at some point that becomes a real problem. <laughs> what, you know? the closeness? Well, a, a kind of closeness that sort of then, s- that sort of surpasses the parental aspect. You know, there's a certain aspect that you do have to be an authority figure and you you, you, you can't be best and that, well, that's also yeah. the yeah the inter- still, yeah. yeah well yeah and also we come from a very infantilized generation of men in a lot of yes, ways that you probably, know you're wearing probably. a thin lizzie shirt yeah. you know <laughs> Yeah. I'm wearing a Grimey's record shirt. I'm 52 years yeah. old. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like that there is this need to sort of like stay. Hey, come on. I'm I'm one of the. Although this now seems like a shirt that makes more sense for me to wear than a teenager. Well, yeah. But I, I, no, not, not because of the band, but just because that seems to seems to be like the fashion that we live through. And I think another at some point people stop. Like to me, it's weirder to be concerned about fashion yeah beyond the age of like dating 
Mm-hmm. You know, like, like, like what? Yeah. Like, it seems like a weird thing. Like, at some point, you don't want to give like, up. Chuck. Well, yeah. give up what though? Yeah, give up worrying good. about shirts? I, I, looking no. good. Yeah, well, that's not really in the equation. So it's like, <laughs> I, I just, I just don't. I, I, it seems like a, it seems like such a dumb thing to be into. I, I just seems like at some point, I just feel like it's important to be like, well, this is the kind of person I am. This is how I look. But, but it's interesting in, in, in relation to the thesis of this book too about you know how you're going to handle parenting. Like, it seems. A lot of parenting now is sort of like, well, how am I going to give him a a, a moral structure to to understand all the input that's going to be possible? Yeah, and 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 how am I going to like in the thing about sports? One of the things I've said on the show a lot is that I regret like your whole sort of vision for the possibility of football disappearing. I don't give a fuck about football. I don't give a fuck about sports at all. I just wasn't wired that way. But I do regret not being taught or given the opportunity to experience healthy competition and understand how to accept losing is not a life or death situation. That's interesting. That's interesting. You regret having had no relationship with sports. Yes. I, I didn't I, I I kind of assume that people who had no conception of sports or no relationship to it kind of looked at like people who were raised in a totally secular way where it just seems crazy to them. No, like when, I, you, when you see like thousands of like the way, the way the Super Bowl impacts things. Like I would think that if you didn't have any relationship to sports, that would seem crazy idiotic. No, I, I mean, I completely understand it. It took me years to understand it. But like I my even my resentment of jocks in high school as a sort of you know, uh, you know, art department kid, mm. you know, was not was, was not horrendous because I was able to sort of engage with them and be okay because I was funny and mm. you know I was weird, but but in retrospect, I I think that you know some of that weird boy shit that you know people that had some sports in their background and you know I was I played some little league, but just to understand that you know competition is 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 healthy in some respects and necessary and to have some handle on it is not a bad thing as opposed to feeling threatened all the time. I mean it, it does I mean I know people this is kind of a like a cliche thing to say, but it, it does feel to me like my experiences playing football and basketball and stuff is had more impact on the way I live my life than the classes I was taking at the time. How so? I just, I remember those things more. I think the lessons I learned were some of the sort of, at times, dark lessons, but like just the idea that like sometimes you got to listen to people who don't know what they're talking about because that's how it is. And it's like, and if you want to fight against it, that's fine. But you, and you can, you can use that as your identity you know, to being like a separatist, but like, you're not going to experience the thing. Right. Like if you want to experience the thing, you know, um, and just sort of like the, you know, so much now in my life, like the reality of like physicality and stuff is totally removed. Like I can, uh, there's just no part of my life that really involves physicality. It's just a, a totally intellectual, like life of the mind or whatever. But I remember in sports it was like that's not how it is like like there is some sort of visceral primal thing where it's like there's a physical component to our life and and if you took away a lot of the trappings of society the people in charge would be very different than the people in charge now but like we've created a world where, we, where that's not the case and that's better but it's it's kind of a fake superstructure yeah uh. and what do you mean well, it's sort of like we have figured out a way to sort of benefit the qualities that we perceive as enlightened good qualities. Yeah. You know, um, and because a lot of it has to do with the wealth of this country yeah. and sort of the security we have, um, I would guess that there are places 
in other parts of the world where that is not the case. Okay, like we've removed ourselves from that. And because of it, we sort of think it's reasonable, but it's only reasonable because we made it this way. Like if something really, really, really bad happened, a different kind of person emerges as necessary. Yeah. And I'm glad that we're not in that situation because I don't know how well I do in that world well i mean some people think we're on the precipice of that possibility Uh, people always think that (laughs) people always think we're on the precipice of everything we're always out we're always right there it's never that we're looking back because it happened it's always we're on the moment you know (laughs) people like to panic they do love to panic well that was also the interesting thing about sports that you said is that that it's really the only you know sort of thing that you see on television that 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 you don't know what's going to happen for real yeah it's and it, because it's 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 completely it's structured, but it's random, and it's all yeah. Okay, now I know what you're yes for that part. That's true. It is. It like it's it sports is a connection to authentic aliveness. Right. That this is not something that anybody can control or script or you know. It's like uh, it's a this unknown thing. Um, you know, I think the reason like uh, just that. It is, it's hard to find situations in life where even if you don't know the answer, that you know no one knows the answer. Like you watch the Academy Awards, you don't know who's necessarily going to win, but somebody does. Yeah. Like, it's in, like there's something real interesting about nobody knows, you know, because there's just not much of that anymore. But do you ever experience that yourself in a moment? Like, you know, like, because you're talking about what I, th- I think uh, real authentic moments. You know, not just not, not just events of the mind uh-huh. or, or puzzles or problems, but even when, you know, you witness a car accident, if it's not a bad car accident, you know, everything sort of slows down. Uh-huh. You know, or if you're watching a performance where something goes wrong, uh-huh. there's nothing greater than that. Or you're actually witnessing something that is, is happening in the moment and it's clear that it is. You, you know, that that seems to me to be a very nourishing element of life and interaction with human beings that, you know, we're having this conversation. Yeah. I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. I'm hoping you and I connect. Or no, I mean, that's or like you go to a play as opposed to a movie. Okay. Right. Like if you want to enjoy a play, what you really need to do is constantly remind yourself they could screw up right now. Yeah, but that's like that a, guy could fall down. <laughs> like she, if she's singing, she could blow this. Like, cause you know, you, the problem when you go to a play now is we almost watch them like movies or TV shows where that will never happen. It's sort of and hard though, because you still feel the people you see them spitting and talking. I, I've gone to plays where you know, that's really what you want to sit as close as possible. Yeah, yeah. That's the best part. It's just, your, it's just, it's kind of mind blowing. Like this is really happening. Same with a good rock show. Yes. But uh, I guess like, you know, coming through all this, so, you know, at the end of the book, it seemed that you, you sort of resigned yourself in, in the present and, and, and found some, some, some solace in the idea that you kind of just, you know, hope tomorrow's okay. Yeah. I mean, I just, I've, (laughs) I, I've come to accept that like, I'm a conservative person. I'm not a Republican because they're not conservative. I'm a conservative person. Well, how so? How do you define that? If it's not political? Well, I mean, because the Republicans are like, the first day in office, I'm going to change it. That's like the opposite of, like, conservatism, to me, would mean sort of like, I am trying to, I want the world to stay stable. Right. Like, I, I want things to remain as they are. I feel as though, uh, you know, life is really complicated, and I prefer having an understanding of whatever I, the little bit I understand. So, I, I, I just, I find that in anything that my natural inclination is to be conservative. Like, I don't gamble. 
I'm not a gambler. You know, I like when I, I even if you talk to a financial advisor, they always give you like the three options. Yeah, you yeah. Know, I always take the most conservative yeah, option. Yeah. Um, when I, I like to go to a restaurant where I understand the menu totally. Yeah. I don't want to be guessing at what I'm getting. Uh-huh. You know, I, I honestly like prefer to talk to people I've talked to a thousand times before. Yeah. Like if I go to a party and two of my friends are there and there's a whole bunch of other interesting people, I'll just talk to my two friends the whole night. That's just how I am. <laughs> right. You know? It sounds to me like what you're calling conservative is is practical uh, for you. Uh, I don't know if it's practical because I mean like a practical person would be like, well, I think a practical person would say things like the internet are a net positive. But to someone like me, it feels like a net negative, that even though it has lots of positive things, that the downsides are maybe deeper and more. I think that I have. So I'm always like I'm not a very pro technology person, even though my life is completely interlocked with it. I can't get away from it. What are you afraid of? I just I think that it is. I think it's changing. uh, I think it's changing the way people view the world in, in a real sort of deep, profound way. Now, what I would say alongside that is that that's not necessarily bad but it will be different and for people like me and i think for most people it's like difference is uncomfortable well let's say it's going to be bad yeah what is bad because i kind of think that most technology is very good in the short term and probably bad in the long term like even going way back to like like the gramophone or whatever like it allows us to have music in front of us that is is not there you know we can just you know um but maybe long term that has changed our relationship to music itself mm-hmm. that there was a time when part of the magic of music was that it's happening here and it can only happen here and like i'm hearing this person play the violin because there they are mm. it's the only way it can be and now that's not how it is so now we can appreciate much more music right. we have access to it but has it actually changed the way something like that is supposed to feel i i always i think that like the most underrated thing that people talk about a little bit but not much but like you know prior to like the early 20th century if somebody saw a lion yeah that meant a lion was in front of them like the, the all of you know it's like if a lion's moving you're looking at a lion and all our sort of biological evolution was built toward this and then starting with like the great train robbery and stuff, we're so now used to seeing things that aren't actually there. I wonder the if- The movie. If television, anything. The great, yes. the great train robbery, yes, the film. Yes, yeah. yes. That is it, you know, it seems as though that shift happened much more faster, much quicker than the time it would take to sort of evolve to the, like we can intellectually understand it, but I wonder if at our subconscious level we can really, under, like, is this why I think, this is my theory, that- Technology often gives people a vague sense of alienation, and they don't know why. They don't know why their email and the internet bums them out or, or why watching TV makes them feel a certain way. They love it. They'd never give it up, right? They right. love it. I wonder if it's this, if it's that this technology has advanced faster than our bodies, like, biologically have been built to sort of understand how fucking insane it is that we can see things moving that aren't actually there. That's so crazy, but... It, we're born into it, so it just seems normal. The adaptation happens. Yeah. Did you uh, did you watch that that big Eagles documentary? That was yeah, on? Okay. I one watched the, as much yeah, of it. I yeah. think I watched all of it. It was like three days long, right? Yeah. There's one part in it where like Joe Walsh, yeah. he's like, I didn't say this. Somebody else said this, but he mentions how it's like 
in the moment, your life feels completely chaotic and confusing and unreasonable. Yeah. But when you look back on your life, it seems like this perfectly knit together novel. Well, okay, I'm sure many people have said this. But when you think about it, it does seem that way. When I look back on my life, even all the things from childhood, all these things you just mentioned, yeah. it all seems to make sense. But I do wonder, am I reverse engineering it? Yeah. I now going back and I'm going to be like, well, this, this must be had led to this or this made this happen or because I had this relationship with my parents and my brothers and my friends and my sisters and all these things like did this happen I, I suspect that no matter what had happened in my life and no matter how, what had that had been like I could make the same connection you know I, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm skeptical of my own ability to sort of explain my life Right. Yeah. No, I get that. Yeah. But like for me, like I find that, you know, there's a certain feeling that I have that's, that's been there all along that, that is somewhat maybe negative and maybe not the best, you know, part of me. And then I have to understand, you know, try to understand, well, is it sort of a, a traumatic sort of frequency that, that, you know, I grew up with? Like I, I get off on that. It might be sort of it's navel gazing. Yeah. Well, no, it's like the idea in this book, this idea that maybe the way we think of the world is just inherently incorrect. I guess I have always thought that. Yeah. I think, I mean, I, I wasn't able to explain it, you know, right. but I think even if, 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 if I like could somehow have like a serious conversation with me as a 12 year old, yeah. I think in some kind of rudimentary lexicon, the 12 year old version of me would be like, it just seems like what we think about the world is probably fake. The world, it's like there's something about the world that's just not what we think is wrong. Like we yeah. just think, you know, and I, so I've all, so this book in some ways I probably have been sort of writing my whole life, but it didn't dawn on me to do it until like three years ago. And that's right. how books work. Yeah. It's like you think about them for a long time without knowing it. And then something happens that causes you to make it into a physical book. And if, 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 if you really had been thinking about it, the book turns out to be good. And if you hadn't been thinking about it, the book ends up being forced. And do you know what the event was that provoked you to write it? Well, I was, it just, I was, found myself interested in like, I was watching the the reboot of the series Cosmos. Yeah. And they would talk about scientists from the past and very often about scientists who'd like kind of been lost to history, but they had an idea and within one generation of their life, yeah, it became as though we'd always thought that. And I was like, well, that must be happening now. Right. And then I was reading about Moby Dick. Yeah. Like on the internet, just reading about it. Yeah. And I just thought it was so interesting, the story of Melville's life and his career. And that's obviously a subjective thing. And the other thing is objective because it's science. But there's something about both of them. Just the sense that we, we just will not, we, like what we think of the world now and all the thoughts we have are inevitably going to seem different than the way this period is remembered. So the people who live through any time period, they have the firsthand experience of what it was like, and yet their experience is not what gets remembered. It's yeah. what other people interpret it as. And I think that's just a interesting thing. Yeah, and constantly sort of changing. Huh. And it, it, it's, it's almost hard to, it, it's very, obviously very hard to pinpoint. Impossible. How, how, that's yeah. it. It's impossible to do. This is an so, impossible book to do. If you were a betting man, a gambling man, yeah. which you aren't, uh, who do you think uh, out of this period, uh, wh what era would this be? For, let's say 2000 to 2020 or 2000. Who, who's going to be the, the standout defining individual? Well, I mean, what I would say is it's going to be whatever person sort of encapsulates what future people think about this 
period. So whatever, you know, like I suspect that the period that we're in right now yeah. will sort in, in when we get far enough away, the main thing that will be remembered about is the advent of the internet. Because yeah. it, it wasn't like, even like the advent of television was huge, but television was still mostly like entertainment. Like yeah. the internet's now interlocked with our lives and like getting more and more. So I think it will probably be someone who is seen as sort of like the, uh, like, a, like a stand-in for however thought changed from like 1995 to 2025 or whatever whatever yeah. you know, like if, what, what, you know so who that person is I, I i i can't i mean i could guess but i my guess would be terrible you know yeah i you know i could just say something but i don't i don't have a real good answer i mean i would just be saying it i feel right. i always feel dumb if i'm just saying something this happened i recently some guy interviewed me from like salon or yeah. something and we had a good interview all the way through yeah. and then at the end he was like okay i need you to make a prediction what's something that we, <laughs> we we believe now we won't believe later and i was like well this isn't a book of predictions he's like but you gotta make a prediction so i was like well okay this isn't really my prediction but you know probably chemotherapy if there's ever a time in the future when we change the way that like we deal with cancer Answer, like through biogenetics or something we'll look back to like pumping poison into people and we'll boy like, that's so barbaric and crazy but it isn't, it's not crazy it's just the that was the headline of the story i have i've had like a, like so many people now ask me about this specific thing which began with me saying i don't want to make a prediction he was like come on i was like okay you're a good guy i just make a prediction <laughs> well what was the backlash of that prediction? well it wasn't a backlash it wasn't yeah. like i'm like oh my god people now think i'm anti-chemotherapy you know, yeah. it's just that it was it's weird to me how much when you talk about the future people want a real definable prediction like they they want this thing to be they don't want ideas about the future they want like this will happen but i understand why i mean it would be kind of like useless if you asked me i kind of mentioned this in the book like if you asked me about you know the kentucky derby who will win the Kentucky derby next year and i'd be like well it will be a fast horse yeah it will be a fast <laughs> horse who like who sort of understands his role in the race so it's like that's not people don't want that you yeah know? yeah well you you were very specific about uh sort of talking about not including uh a conversation about global warming in yeah. the book because what was that battle well it, you know the thing is, first of all, it's not like a speculative thing. Like, we can measure the carbon in the air. Yeah. Like we know what's happening. So, it's not really like, you know, it's right. just, you know. Um, also, it's not like that. I mean, I'm interested in questions that are so almost obvious in a way that people don't even ask them. Right. And people are obviously having that conversation. Like, it's not as though people aren't talking about the possibility of climate change being real or false. But the, the the part I'd note was that, like, my editor was sort of yeah. like, you should talk about this more. Yeah. And then a few friends of mine who read the book early were like, you should take that out. It's just going to distract people. So then I left in what I had. I didn't make it bigger or yeah. smaller. But I under, But, you know, by mentioning that, by saying, like, I'm not talking about this because it will distract people, has definitely increased the number of people interested about it. Yeah. It does distract people. Right. Because it's something that... People just don't feel comfortable being part of this, hey, who knows debate. They don't want this to be part of that on either side. Right. Like there's some debates people are just not cool with you being like, let's just be devil's advocate. No way. You just can't handle it. Are you concerned about the country? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, uh, but I I think I always was. I don't don't remember – you know, don't, it's not like it was like 1989 and we we're like, we're finally going after it. Now things are great. Like it, yeah. it always seemed like uh, the country 
is getting worse. It is always my whole life. It has yeah. seemed that way, and I don't know what it is. I sometimes wonder if I'm actually seeing it in complete reverse. If actually every year of my life has been better than the year before, but for whatever reason, I'm I can't see it. It's like it seems worse to me. Where are you living now, New York? I live in Brooklyn right now. Oh yeah, yeah. and you're happy. Yeah, yeah. Well, good. I think I don't think my life has ever been had more happiness in it. Certainly. Well, I mean, good. when you're younger, you're more optimistic because anything is possible. Well, you're also struggling, too. Yes, and, yeah. And, and fighting the fight and figuring it out. And you're just more emotional. Like, I'm, I'm, it's good to become less emotional, I think. I think that's a, this is a misnomer in the culture that we're not emotional enough. I yeah. think it's good to be less But also, emotional. you have specific emotions that now are appropriate, not as selfish, and, you know, because you, you got a family, yeah, and, you uh-huh. know, it's all, it's, it's all good. It's, uh, it's working out for you. I hope so. Is that, I mean, are you? I mean, are you happy? I'm happier. Hmm. I don't have a family. I'm too anxious a man. Uh, yeah, the you know, problems remain, Chuck. And uh, I, I wish that I could uh, relieve myself by by doing the big thinking in the way that you do and, do and you finding think, all do these. Do you think you'll get married again? I don't think so. You don't think so? I'm I'm I'm, I'm with somebody, but I, I don't know. You know, I, I've done. I, I'm losing a sense of what the purpose would be. Huh. You know, like huh. what does it really mean? For me at 52. But you seem to be big into symbolic acts. You like symbolism. And that's what marriage is. In I know. Life. I know. So I get I would that. Think that you would appreciate just the sort of what it says for you to do it. No, I know. But but okay. but like I've become cynical because what it has said in the past, it didn't end well mm-hmm. uh, one way or the other. I don't think I'm going to have kids. And I just wonder what the nature of relationship is for me at 52. What do I really want? Do you know what I mean? You You've done the thing that I didn't didn't manage to do which is you brought life into the world and you realize that there's a profound amount of uh, awe and joy and, and a lot of other things but the idea of, uh, of necessary selflessness and having that be a revelation mm. uh, is, is, is something that I, I don't know if I'm going to experience and I don't know I think that might hobble me <laughs> in the final quarter but, but we'll see <laughs> <laughs> so you're, you're anticipating hobbles yeah like, yeah a little bit <laughs> not all around but uh, I would like to figure out what uh, what um, what the point is for me you know I mean you have uh, you know you have a, a couple of points at home that you know it's very clear you know it's mapped out for you well has has the way your career changed has that made you a happier person definitely because yeah. You work a long time to do something and then something happens. It's a surprise for me how it happened. But, you know, you feel like all that work wasn't for nothing. But the idea, like some people will say, like, it doesn't really matter the condition of your life. You're going to be happy or sad regardless of this. You you would say for you that's not true. It's not true because, you know, the the insecurity and the the sort of uh, lack of self-esteem that comes from struggling to to do something to achieve something to create something relevant you know is real and and i and i think that if if you spend your life doing that and it never really comes to pass or you don't get that break or it doesn't it doesn't happen uh that that's horrifying to me and i was fortunate in in my uh that it happened do you feel nervous about losing it not not right not anymore you know what you feel nervous about is some sort of weird blindside some other shoe dropping some you know peculiar lawsuit or slander my biggest anxiety is always that it's all gonna go away as fast as it came so so in some ways that's but you've created things that won't go away I've created things that won't go away maybe when we're dead or whatever no no I I don't I don't mean like I just mean that like I'll, I'll I'll 
I'll screw up or something and lose it. You know, like that right. would be yeah, that's that, that, fear, that, yeah. that, that, that'll, that it will yeah. be, you know, because it happened so fast and so arbitrarily it felt that things went good that I just wonder like, well, couldn't that exactly happen in reverse? I mean, yeah. of course it's good. So, yeah. you know, I hate thinking about that. Yeah, no, I, well, that's the one thing you hate yeah. thinking about. Yeah, <laughs> I do hate thinking about that. But it's great talking to you, man. Oh, thanks for having me. And I really I, appreciate it. And I enjoyed the book. And it, there was a lot in it. My takeaway was like, I, am I interested in enough things? <laughs> Should I be you know, reading more about science? And, and, you know, but that's good. I learned things. Yeah, I, I guess I just have a shallow interest in everything. I don't know. Like a little it? bit. Like a little I mean, I mean, not, I'm not sure. I'm not shallow as a weird I'm, I'm just saying, like, I'm kind of a dilettante. No, you're not. That, you just want to have a handle on shit. Well, it's just, it's just, it's, I, I like to know a little bit about everything. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, <laughs> but, but in that, you know, that informs your personal, you know, wisdom and philosophy. Oh, probably. And, oh, yeah. It's real lucky to be a writer. And this is like, I, like, the idea of like these are luxury thoughts yeah <laughs> like these are thoughts that like that the average person can think about when they're reading this book but like the idea of thinking about it several hours a day many many days that's like not many people have this job i'm lucky i have this job like well, i have the job to do that you know but also but yeah. i think it's deeper than that in the sense that like as I get older, you know, I, I, you know, I find that I give a fuck less about certain things and that, you know, my personal sort of stability and, and, and kind of, you know, search for meaning in life becomes paramount to my concern about yeah. other things. And like this, it, when I read a book like this, you know, it's, it, skepticism is healthy. You know, having a little fight in you is healthy. Questioning the nature See, of reality. What you just said makes me nervous though. Because the first thing I thought of when you said that is I was like. I don't think being interested in something and giving a fuck about it are remotely connected. <laughs> like that was the first thing I thought. It's like I like I'm interested in many things. I don't care about them. I'm just interested. It's purely that. And I was like, boy, is that a, is that does that make me like a sociopath? If it, that's how it is, it's sort of like I like you know I uh, the way I follow things. I just see other people's emotional investment, and I'm like, that's so. It's interesting that you feel that much. Yeah. You know, it's like, I want to talk about this, but I don't want to feel the way you do. That seems terrible. Well, you know? do, you, do you feel like you're avoiding your own feelings? Probably. But I mean, <laughs> probably. I I just, you know, I mean, half the feelings feel bad, right? Half of them are good and half of them are bad. So it's like, you know. You and your numbers. Yeah. The percentages. <laughs> well, I hope the uh, good ones start to, to, to outweigh the bad ones. Thanks for talking. Thank you. That's it. That's me and Chuck Klosterman. The book was interesting. I, I I read right through it. He's a very compelling, thoughtful, smart dude. Makes you look at things different. That book is called, But What If We're Wrong? Enjoyed it. I like his books. Go to WTFPod.com for all your WTF Pod needs. Powered by Squarespace. Lovely website. Check the tour. Merch. A lot of fun posters. A lot of t-shirts. The t-shirts are happening. They've been there for a while, but I guess people never noticed them. Go to that merch section on the site. I'll play a little guitar, but I don't have anything prepared.
Boomer lives!